This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to talk about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, from history to your stories. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org, send us your stories, and we'll produce them, and we'll put them right up on the air. The American people have beautiful stories to tell, and we tell so many of them. And today, we seek to honor those who served our country and even given their lives. We have Joy Neal Kidney sharing her uncle's story. Joy is one of our listeners from 1040 AM WHO in Des Moines, and it's a powerhouse signal, one of the great heritage signals in this country. And she's contributed to our show before, and today we hear from her again. Her piece is titled, Donald Wilson, the Humble Hero. Most of the heroes among us are just ordinary people, like my Uncle Don. I knew him as mom's brother, who lived way out in Washington State, and who liked fishing. When I was a kid growing up on an Iowa farm, the best part of getting a fat letter from Aunt Rose was a picture of Uncle Don with a big salmon. Mom's older brother had been a commercial fisherman. Even when he later took a job with the Washington Department of Transportation, he still headed out with his boat on Willapa Bay every chance he got. So every fishing season, we get snapshots of him, with a huge fish hanging from one hand and a fishing pole in the other. Dressed in faded jeans and a plaid shirt, usually a vest with lots of pockets. Sometimes a U.S. Navy cap, either the USS Hancock or the Yorktown. Although Mom rarely mentioned the war, World War II, She told us that her brother Don, who grew up in the small town of Dexter, Iowa, had been a sailor on the famous Yorktown, the one lost during a big battle in the Pacific Ocean, and that he had had to tread water for an hour before being rescued. Every few years, Uncle Don and Aunt Rose would drive back to Iowa to visit. I was unaware of all the other combat he'd survived, all the heartache he'd been through, all the complexity of this seemingly ordinary man. As teenagers, Sis Gloria and I traveled by train with Grandma to the West Coast to visit relatives, including Don and Rose. In 1962, they lived in a little house out along the Nacelle River. As soon as they learned we were coming, Uncle Don added a room to their home, an indoor bathroom. Since Aunt Rose didn't drive, they had only a pickup. One foggy day, we joined a crowd of clam diggers and carried our limit home to try fried clams and to make clam chowder. Digging them was more fun than eating them for farm girls used to Iowa beef and pork. Years later, I learned that not only had Uncle Don been on the historic Yorktown during the Battle of Midway, but that he'd had to abandon ship twice. He spent an hour in the oily Pacific after Japanese bombs had crippled the ship. The next day, the aircraft carrier was listing, dead in the water, but still afloat. A few dozen men reboarded the battered ship for a salvage attempt. One of them was 25-year-old Donald Wilson. After doing repairs all morning on a lower level of the ship, he clambered up to the deck for something to eat. An alarm blared. Don jumped up and saw torpedoes in the water 
speeding right at his ship. One slammed into them. He ran to the fantail and leaped a second time. A nearby ship rescued him and other survivors. The next morning, sailors asleep on the deck were nudged awake as the carrier began to sink, her battle flags still flying. Many of them wept as they stood at attention to witness their ship roll over and plunge into the ocean. Donald Wilson first joined the Navy with his older brother in 1934. During the Great Depression, where there were no jobs for teenagers, not even for their father. Don stayed in the Navy and in 1937 became a plank owner on the brand new Yorktown, meaning he was a member of the crew when it was placed in commission. I served on her 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 whole life, Don later wrote of the ship. He later received a citation signed by Admiral Chester Nimitz for being part of that salvage attempt. I'd written to Uncle Don and Aunt Rose for decades, but after Grandma died and getting to read the family's war letters, I started a correspondence with Uncle Don that lasted the rest of his life. I wanted to make sure he had all the medals he was entitled to. He said he didn't want any, that he was no hero and wasn't interested in medals. That is until I learned there was one for that citation. When he finally received it, he proudly framed all of his medals and ribbons. Uncle Don was also a plank owner on the USS Hancock, another aircraft carrier. The Hancock was in combat in nearly every major naval battle during those last desperate months of the Pacific War, except when out of action for repairs after being attacked by a kamikaze. All five Wilson brothers of Dallas County, Iowa, served in World War II. The three youngest, Dale, Danny, and Junior, lost their lives, two of them in combat. Their surviving family members never got over the blows of losing these three young pilots, including their older brother, Don. Still in the Navy after the war, he decided he didn't want to make it a career after all. He was ready for some peace and quiet and a fishing pole. No one would suspect that the ordinary man in the snapshots with the big fish was indeed a hero one with a poignant history. And thanks so much for that. We're listening to Joy Neal Kidney's story, her Uncle Don's story, and there are so many like this across this great country. Send yours to OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories, and we talk about everything here on this show, from the arts to music to sports and, of course, history. We love talking about history, but we also love talking to Heidi Mitchell at the Wall Street Journal because we love her regular feature there, 
burning question. And this last burning question, what's the best way to take an afternoon nap, had us all puzzling. And Heidi, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Now, Heidi, begin begin with things simple. Are you a napper? Uh, so there are three types of people. There's those who can just fall asleep like on a train standing up. There's people who, who like to take a nap and can take a nap. And then there's people like me who say there's just no scenario in which I could fall asleep during the day. <laughs> yeah, you're my wife. She can't ever fall asleep. I, my wife says I'm not a napper. I'm a narcoleptic. I can fall asleep. <laughs> I can just dead fall asleep anywhere when I'm tired. So I don't know yeah. that I'm a napper. I just I just fall asleep. So I fall in that first category. Tell us about who you talk to about this thing called napping, Heidi. So I talked to a guy called David Dingis, who is a professor at Penn at the Perlman School of Medicine. He's written a book on this stuff. He's a, a real expert, and he was really deep in the weeds. It was a great conversation. He has lots of um, thoughts on your chronobiological clock and 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 the medical aspects of napping um, and also coffee, which are one of our other favorite subjects at the Wall Street Journal. Um, so yeah, he had a lot, a lot to say. Um, he's a big advocate of naps, as we all should be, it turns out. And he said something about naps being either voluntary or involuntary. What's the difference between the two of those? And also, what did he have to say about sleep more generally? I mean, oh, do we need naps because we're not getting enough sleep? Or do we need naps so, in addition to the sleep we should already have? So there's a couple things. Is I mean, most of us in the in the modern world, we tend to be sleep deprived. We're supposed to get, you know, it varies between seven and ten hours, depending on which doctor you ask. But most of us aren't building in the seven hours of sleep. That means getting into bed, you know, a half an hour before you go to sleep, right? So you get the full seven hours of sleep. Um, and most of us just don't have that kind of time. So we're we're sleep deprived. We build up the sleep debt. We're tired, and so a nap can alleviate that. Even a short nap can alleviate that. So if you're super-duper um, sleep-deprived, you will, rather than taking off your clothes and getting into bed and, and building a nap into your day, you'll have what's called an involuntary nap, and you'll just fall asleep at your desk or on the train or while driving your car, God forbid. Um, so, you know, you want to try and avoid sleep debt for sure. That's like the main thing. But then also there's this genetic component, which we can get to later, um, which is not well understood, but it appears as though we are programmed evolutionarily to want to nap kind of after lunch and at how, the height of the heat. Talk about that genetic component. Let's talk about that right now, Heidi. So the theory is that, you know, at the height of the day when, you know, most of civilization evolved around the equator where it's super hot during the day, the animals are not out there napping. So it's a safe time to go take a break. Um, so, so there seems to be this window after lunch, before dinner, there's a question of where exactly it falls, but where your, your biological, your evolutionary clock wants you to just chill out, which is sort of why at four o'clock we all need a cup of coffee, right? We get yep. tired or sugar, you know, we need some to boost us. So, you know, they're not totally sure why, but the thinking is that, yeah, during, for most of humanity, you know, those were safe hours to sleep and you couldn't hunt and you couldn't really forage. It was really hot. And so it was a good time to sleep. And then when it got dark, you went to sleep. And when it got light, you woke up. That makes complete sense. And any of us who spend time when we're on vacations, we've been to the beach all day. I mean, we, we know that that cycle kicks in hard yeah, at, exactly. at four o'clock. It's hot. 
Yeah. Hot, you fall asleep and and sometimes you wake up if you if you were awoken by an alarm or you didn't get you didn't catch up all of your sleep debt and fill your sleep tank all the way, um, you might feel a little bit groggy. And so a lot of people don't like that, which is why a lot of people choose not to nap because they don't feel great when they wake up. They feel like they're not a hundred percent. So this is where coffee comes in. Yep, but yep. uh but a lot of people will avoid a nap because they don't like that groggy feeling. They just don't feel like they can perform. Right. And so how exactly do we doze off? Because this, I thought, was the most interesting part of the piece. I know, right? So fascinating. So it's very biological. So your muscles start to relax. So let's say you're you're standing up on a train holding onto the bar in the middle there. So then your arms start to lose their um, control, and they relax, and then your hands relax, and then your eyelids go, and then your neck goes, right? So then your head falls over, and then you jerk up. Okay, so this is terrible because your brain does not go into um, a good deep sleep and you're just, it's almost like a disturbed night of sleep. You're just like falling and rising and falling and rising. You can imagine how it does kind of feel amazing though, that feeling of falling into a deep sleep when you're not supposed to. There's some, some like guilt, delicious guilt built into that, but it's not, it's not going to give you the replenish your sleep debt the way that a voluntary nap where you're laying down is gonna it's gonna it's not gonna do that for you. Well I love the part here where you say that triggers the part of your brain that feels you're falling. That's of course when the neck goes, which wakes you up. I mean how many times yeah. are we woken up by the nap we're almost involuntarily pushed into by our exhaustion. Or how about in a meeting? <laughs> That's even more exciting. That's the worst. <laughs> that Sunglasses. is the worst. That is so so what's the best way, the the very best way to take a nap? So it's funny because the way that we work now, I don't know what your office is like, but typically offices now are open plan. And even those that are fortunate enough to have an office, they tend to be glassy. So this is not a good way to take a nap because you, for, we're not sure why. I think it has to do with, you know, our animal instinct, but you need to be in a safe place. So he was talking actually about homeless people and how it's really so sad to see people sleeping on a park bench because it's not a safe environment to sleep in. And so they're probably not getting quality sleep. Um, and so we're a little bit in a zone all the time. Um, but so you want to be in a, obviously in a cool place because you sleep best when it's like in the sixties. Um, you know, ideally you want to be, you want to be prone because when you're laying down, um, your body can, the, all those muscles can relax and your head's not going to fall over and wake you up. And you want to be in a dark, space that, you know, no one's watching you. So you feel safe. So a glassy office is not a great place. It used to be that, um, like being a madman or whatever, and, you know, you could just close the door, lay down on your couch to take a 15 minute nap and no, just say, you know, don't interrupt me for 15 minutes. And it was totally fine. That's kind of looked upon as lazy now. And it's not that way in all cultures. You know, in Japan, they're still okay with naps. The siesta is still a big thing in, in um, Spanish speaking countries. Um, and the way that we know that taking a mid afternoon nap is good, um, is that places like, um, China, when they industrialized, they forbade, um, they forbade the nap and the productivity didn't go up. So there's, there's this, they call it a sleep wake window that opens up in the afternoon and your it's a harmonic gate in your circadian rhythm and it just opens up. And, and so if you can find, uh, I don't know, a secret room in your office, where you can shut and lock the door, set your phone alarm for like 15, 20 minutes. And I, I promise you, you will feel refreshed. Even if you don't totally fall asleep, you'll feel refreshed. You can have a cup of coffee after. 
um, and then you'll you should be a hundred percent. And have you seen these places, Heidi, at the airport now, around American airports, where you can like basically go in and take a nap? Have you seen? Yes, I've seen these pods, right? Yeah, they're little pods, and they're trying to create that cool space where you can be prone and it's dark, and it's you're by yourself. Japanese. And they're they're like in fifteen minute increments, which is really kind of all you need. Yep, isn't that amazing? I mean, you could just do fifteen minutes, and you can feel much better. Well, I love what Doctor Dingy said. He said, "Quote: Being awake is like carrying a bag on your back. The longer you're awake, the more bricks you add." He says, "And when you take a nap, you remove some of those bricks." And by the way, Doctor Dingy's—that's the uh, professor you talked at the University of Pennsylvania's. Perlman School of Medicine. His book is Sleep and Alertness, Chronobiological, Behavioral, and Medical Aspects of Napping. So he wrote a yeah, whole book on this. He wrote a yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sitting at a bookstore near you, Heidi. Yeah, I'm sure. I think you have to buy it on Amazon used. I think it may be out of print. But he's written <laughs> other books as well and lots of papers, but he's so into this subject and we talked for at least an hour. Um, but he was we were asking, you know, is there a way that employers can can help uh, you know, their, their employees to have this built in. And he said, you know, employers are really all about their profits, their bottom line. And so, you know, I've seen it at, you've seen it at Google, you know, they have those pods. Yep. So some forward thinking, um, corporations do have that, but I do think there is still, um, a stigma attached to taking a nap in the middle of the day. And if we can just somehow societally remove that stigma, we would have a much more productive society. We would be less hangry, grumpy, have nicer exchanges, um, you know, work life would be better balanced, um, and free coffee. Well, here at Our American Stories, the staff has free coffee and they can nap anytime, especially when we're doing the show. Heidi, thanks so much for joining us as always. My pleasure. Thank you. Go have your 15-minute nap after lunch. Oh, I will. And Heidi Mitchell, as always, the burning question from the Wall Street Journal. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love telling stories about everything here on this show. If you're interested in subscribing to our free and weekly newsletter in which we send you our five best stories, go to our website at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And now we bring you a story that's become classic American folklore. The year 1947, the place, Roswell, New Mexico. Here's Jesse. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. In July of 1947, a man by the name of Mac Brazel heard an explosion somewhere on his ranch, roughly 75 miles northwest of Roswell, New Mexico. The following morning, the 48-year-old ranch foreman left on horseback to investigate the sound that he had heard. 
Strewn about on a remote desert field was the wreckage of an aircraft unlike any he had ever seen. The rancher then called the local sheriff, who inspected the crash site. Not knowing what to make of it, the sheriff then took some of the wreckage back to the station before calling nearby Roswell Army Airfield. Intelligence Officer Major Jesse Marcel was one of the very first to respond to the scene. It was not anything from this earth that I'm quite sure of. Because I was being an intelligence officer, I was familiar with just about all materials used in aircraft and in our air travel. This is nothing like that. It could not be. It could not have been. It was Major Marcel's commanding officer, Colonel William Blanchard, who ordered the recovery of the remaining wreckage that was left on the 8,000-acre ranch. Major Marcel described some of the material that he found. We found a piece of metal, uh, about, about a foot and a half, two feet wide, and about, about two or three feet long. It felt like you had nothing in your hands. It wasn't any thicker than the foil out of a pack of cigarettes. But the, the thing about it that got me is that you couldn't even bend it, you couldn't bend it, even with a sledgehammer would bounce off of it. So I knew that I had never seen anything like that before. And as of, as of now, I don't know what it was. Whatever it was, something had crashed at Foster Ranch and scattered debris over several acres. While military personnel gathered the unidentified wreckage, Major Jesse Marcel then loaded his trunk with items collected from the site and drove back to the military base. But first, he would make a little stop along the way. The Major's son, Jesse Marcel Jr., was 11 years old at the time and would remember that night for the rest of his life. My dad was dispatched by the base commander, who was Colonel Blanchard, to go out there and, and collect some residue to see if, if this was a military aircraft or if it was a V-2 rocket from the White Sands Proving Grounds or whatever was crashed on this rancher's land. And, uh, and he did go out there along with a CIC agent, uh, uh, Sheridan Cavett, who was, that was the forerunner of the CIA, I believe. And uh, so they picked up the res, you know, representative portions of the debris that was out there. So he's going to uh, drive it into the base that night. Uh, our house happened to be on the way to the base, but he realized there was something very extraordinary about this wreckage. And he wanted my mother and myself to see this because uh, he realized we'd probably never see anything like this again. So that's what he did. He <clears throat> did work a little bit out of his way to our house, and uh, he uh, positioned some of the wreckage on the kitchen floor of our house, woke my mother and myself up so we could see what he collected uh, out in the desert there. And uh, it's one o'clock in the morning, or thereabouts, very late in the morning. And and he said, well, look at this. I want you to look at this now. I think this is parts of what they call, I think he said, flying saucer. And uh, and that had a very special connotation, not knowing exactly what a flying saucer was, but I realized it was extraordinary, whatever. And uh, he said, uh, the connotation was this came from outer space. Outer space or not? The items brought home that night were highly unusual. Metal fragments, um, beams with strange letters or writing on them. Uh, yeah, I didn't keep any of it. Uh, people ask, well, why didn't you keep some of it? Well, I couldn't because it was part of the Air Force property. And uh, some people say, well, you brought, your father broke security by bringing this highly secret stuff to your house. But it wasn't classified at the time. Classified later, but it wasn't classified when he brought it to the house. Major Jesse Marcel then gathered up the wreckage and took it to Roswell Army Airfield. 
First Lieutenant Walter Hout was the public information officer at the 509th Bomb Group based in Roswell during 1947. What happened next was nothing short of bizarre. I was instructed by Colonel Blanchard to put out a press release which in effect stated that we had in our possession a flying saucer. In essence, it said that we have in our possession a flying disc. It uh, was picked up on a ranch, and I can't remember if I said northwest of Roswell, brought into town by Mac Brazel, a ranch foreman, uh, and the material was flown to higher headquarters, 8th Air Force, General Raymond. Newspapers ran headlines about the crashed flying saucer that came down 75 miles northwest of Roswell. William Brazel, son of rancher Mac Brazel, who found the wreckage, remembers reading about it the following morning. I was not out at the ranch at the time, and I picked up an Albuquerque paper, and here's my dad's picture looking at me, and I thought, well, I wonder what he's done now. So I went on to read the article, and I told Shirley, I said, well, I guess I better go out to the ranch because they said that he, the Air Force had asked him to stay in Roswell. Anyway, they swore dead to secrecy. And I went out to the ranch and stayed until he got back. And I asked him what he got into. And, and I kept asking him questions. And he said, well, he said, I told the Air Force I wouldn't tell anybody. You're probably better off without knowing. Regardless of being sworn to secrecy, the word was out, and radio stations all over the world began broadcasting reports of a crashed flying saucer. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. Army officers say the missile found sometime last week has been inspected at Roswell, New Mexico, and sent to Wright Field, Ohio, for further inspection. Late this afternoon, a bulletin from New Mexico suggested that the widely publicized mystery of the flying saucers may soon be solved. Army Air Force officers reported that one of the strange discs had been found and inspected sometime last week. Our correspondents in Los Angeles and Chicago have been in contact with Army officials endeavoring to obtain all possible late information. Joe Wilson reports to us now from Chicago. The Army may be getting to the bottom of all this talk about the so-called flying saucers. As a matter of fact, the 509th Atomic Bomb Group headquarters at Roswell, New Mexico, reports that it has received one of the discs which landed on a ranch outside Roswell. The disc landed at a ranch at Corona, New Mexico, and the rancher turned it over to the Air Force. Rancher W.W. Brizel was the man who discovered the saucer. Colonel William Blanchard of the Roswell Air Base refuses to give details of what the flying disc looks like. In Fort Worth, Texas, where the object was first sent, Brigadier General Roger Ramey says that it is being shipped by air to the AAF Research Center at Wright Field, Ohio. A few moments ago, I talked to officials at Wright Field, and they declared that they expect the so-called flying chopper to be delivered there, but that it hasn't arrived as yet. When we return, first-hand accounts from former military and civilian alike of the UFO crash at Roswell. This is Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and we return now to Jesse and the site of the UFO crash at Roswell, New Mexico. The 509th Atomic Bomb Group headquarters at Roswell, New Mexico, reports that it has received one of the disks which landed on a ranch outside Roswell. The disk landed at a ranch at Corona, New Mexico, and the rancher turned it over to the Air Force. Rancher W.W. Brizel was the man who discovered the topper. Colonel William Blanchard of the Rockwell Air Base refuses to give details of what the flying disc looked like. Shortly after these reports of a crashed flying saucer were broadcast, announcer Frank Joyce from radio station KGFL in Roswell received an interesting communication from someone claiming to be from Washington, D.C. I got a phone call. Well, I got a number of phone calls, but the one that really got my attention was purportedly from the Pentagon. There was young lady on the line saying, Colonel so-and-so, uh, this is the Pentagon calling. And this was within a few minutes of it going out on the wire. And the voice on the line says, uh, who is this? I tell him, he said, you put that story on, on the air about the flying saucers? And I mean, his voice was, you know, the type that really conveys menace and power. And I said, yes, I did. And he says, you're going to get in a lot of trouble uh, for this or made some some threatening comment. And I said, look, I'm a civilian. You can't talk to me this way. You can't treat me this way. You can't tell me what to do in stories I put on the air. <clears throat> and he says, I'll show you what I can do. And bang, hung up the phone. The KGFL announcer wasn't the only one to receive a mysterious phone call from someone claiming to be from Washington. George Roberts, the owner of the radio station, was also contacted. I got a call from Washington from one of the offices of one of the senators saying, look, if you put out any stories on this, this thing, you're going to lose your license. And it's not going to be over a period of time, it's going to be the same day that we tell you that you're off the air. If these intimidating phone calls were in fact from Washington, why would the military in Roswell admittedly put out a press release about flying saucers? First Lieutenant Jack Trowbridge had been assigned to the 509th Bomb Group in 1947. He was one of several military personnel who was then told not to talk about it. Jesse brought some of the stuff into the intelligence office. Their material had some peculiar properties. For instance, it looked like Hershey bar wrappings. And, but you squeeze it up in your hand as hard as you could, let go, and it returned originally to the original shape, instantly. And uh, so we looked at it and played with it a while, and then everybody went back to work. Later that day, Boom! Nobody knows anything. You just shut up. Nothing happened, uh, etc. And when you're in the service, you do what they say to do. While military officials out of Roswell were distributing press releases about crashed alien spacecraft, the U.S. military would use Major Jesse Marcel to take the fall. They took pictures, of course. They had a whole flock of microphones there. They wanted me to. To, they wanted some comments from me, but I wasn't at liberty to do that. So all I could do is keep my mouth shut. And General Ramey is the one who discussed or uh, told the, the newspapers, I mean the newsmen, 
what it was and to forget about it. It was nothing more than a weather observation balloon. Of course, which we, we both knew differently. Here again is Lieutenant Jack Trowbridge. What he had to show the press was really a weather balloon. This stuff was not a weather balloon, what he brought back. So he was forced to lie to the press, I would say. I don't think he was too happy about it, but you do what you're told again. You're in the service, you followed orders. And they were afraid of the American public panicking with this knowledge. I don't think that would have happened, but I, the word came down from up above and you do what it says. Could it have simply been a weather balloon? How could have all these experienced ranking military professionals have gotten it all so very wrong? Frankie Dwyer was a 13-year-old girl who was spending the day with her father, the firefighter, down at the station where he worked, when a state trooper came in with a piece of the wreckage. When I would wad it up, it was like I had nothing in my hand. I couldn't feel it touching my skin. It was real weird. Drop it on the table and it was just like water. They all seem to mention this type of metal that looks like aluminum foil with otherworldly properties, and many of them report that they were intimidated by officials soon after handling the debris. Here again is Frankie Dwyer. He had this club or stick or whatever it was, and he would, was beating it on his hand, and he would hit it. Every time he would say something, he'd hit his hand. And he said, I want you to know you were never there. I didn't understand what he meant because I said, yes, I was. And he said, no, you weren't. I said, yes, I was. And he said, can't you get this through your head? You never saw anything. You were not there. You don't know anything. And he said, no, this is a big desert out here. We can just take you out in the middle of this desert and no one will ever find your bodies. He said, you'll be nothing but bones and nobody will ever know what happened to you. And I told him I would not talk about it. And what about reports of alien bodies recovered from the crash? No. As far as I know, an alien spacecraft did not crash in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. If the United States Air Force did recover alien bodies, they didn't tell me about it either. And I want to know. The mortician for Roswell in 1947 was a man named Glenn Dennis. He too received a strange phone call in the middle of the night. Well, our mortuary had the contract for all military services out at the Roswell Army Airfield. And this uh, gentleman called and said he was a mortuary officer at the base. He needed some information. I said, what do you need? And he said, uh, how many uh, hermetically sealed infant caskets do you have? Three and a half, four foot in stock. And I said, we don't have any. I said, what's going on? He said, that's not important. I said, well, it is important also. But anyway, then I hung up. And then he uh, called back later and he said, uh, I need more information. And uh, you want to know what embalming chemicals that would alter the tissue, the stomach contents, and what is our preparation for... Uh, taking care of bodies and laying out in the elements for several days. 
And I said, you're the mortuary officer and you're asking me because I do it your way, you know. I was trying to find out who I was talking to. The mortician trying to get to the bottom of this strange request. His girlfriend at the time just happened to be a nurse who was working at Roswell Army Airfield the night they allegedly brought in the bodies. It looks like what you see today, most of the little diagrams, you know, the four fragile fingers and the long arm, real short joint, the large eyes. She said the heads were almost completely demolished, but they could see they only had two orifices. They didn't have earlobes, they had two ear canals. Mouth was only about one inch. And that's the way she described it to me. I was with her till about 11.30 that day, and then at 3.30 that afternoon, her supervisor called and said, your friend has been transferred out. And I had a serial number and everything else, but I never have found her this day. I've never made contact with her. So. People from all walks of life tell a very similar story. It was not anything from this earth that I'm quite sure of. Did officials at Roswell Army Air Base get it wrong when they told the media that they had a flying saucer in custody. I was instructed by Colonel Blanchard to put out a press release, which in effect stated that we had in our possession a flying saucer. Could all of these people simply have mistaken a weather balloon for a flying saucer? According to the official report from the Pentagon, that is exactly what happened. Air Force activities which occurred over a period of many years have been consolidated and are now represented to have occurred in two or three days in July 1947. Bodies observed in the New Mexico desert were probably test dummies that were carried aloft by U.S. Air Force high-altitude balloons for scientific research. The unusual military activities in the New Mexico desert were high-altitude research balloon launch and recovery operations. These are the stories of ordinary people who went to their graves swearing that what they had witnessed was not of this earth. Or maybe it was just a weather balloon. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. This is Our American Stories, and we tell every kind of story here. 
And today we have a special kind of sports story. Catherine Switzer was the first woman to officially run the Boston Marathon. Today, we have her telling her whole story of why she ran it and what happened because she did. Here's Catherine. I was the first woman to actually register for the race and pin on a bib and go to the start line and run the Boston Marathon. There was a, a woman the year before named Bobby Gibb who jumped in the race um, unregistered, um, and I don't want to take anything away from her. But what is really amazing about my story, sometimes the worst things in your life can become the best things in your life. And that is that when I showed up at the starting line of the Boston Marathon. I was I was with my coach, my teammates, and it was a snowy, sleety, horrible day. And yet all the guys in the race were so wonderful and welcoming to me. And they were excited that a woman was registered and signed up for the race. And they would say, hey, I wish my wife would run. I wish my girlfriend would run. Go for it. We're with you all the way. And they were extremely, extremely motivating. And it was a wonderful wonderful time until the gun went off and then down the street we went. I was very, very happy to finally be running the Boston Marathon. And the official truck came by uh, and the press truck came by at the same time. First was the press truck and they were honking at us to move over because they were coming through and taking pictures, shooting from the back of the truck as we were running toward them. And the officials um, and the photographers just went crazy seeing there was a girl in the race wearing bib numbers. And they began teasing one of the officials on the official bus, and his name was Jock Semple. He was the co-race director of the race. And they began teasing him and saying, Hey, Jocko, there's a girl in your race and she's wearing numbers. I wonder what her mother calls her, you know, Kurt, Carrie, or Kim. And they were referring to the race program because I had signed up for the Boston Marathon with my initials, KV Switzer. But the reason uh, that it incited the official was because they were teasing him about it. And he jumped off the press bus and went down the street after me and jumped on me and grabbed me and said, get the hell out of my race and give me those numbers and tried to rip my bib numbers off. And my coach was trying to get him away from me and he was saying, leave her alone, leave her alone. She's okay, I've trained her. Um, and he swatted my coach away and said, stay out of this. And they came back after me. But my boyfriend was also running with me. And my boyfriend just happened to be a 235 pound ex-All-America football player who was only running the Boston Marathon because if a girl could do it, he could do it. But he came in very handy at that moment because he smacked the official and knocked the official out of the race instead. And my coach screamed, run like hell, and down the street we went. And we were, we were really, really scared. I was absolutely terrified because I didn't know why this official had attacked me. I couldn't understand um, why he was so angry. And, and I began thinking, well, it's probably because he's the race director. He thinks I'm, I'm making a fool of him um, and trying to you know, sneak into the race. When all along, you know, I officially registered because that's what the rules said you had to do. But anyway, um, the whole incident was captured in front of the press truck. And the pictures of this incident were flashed around the world. Even before I finished the race, people around the world were seeing these images of this girl running and girl being attacked by race director and then being saved by Burley Boyfriend. Because in 1967, 
That's what people love to think is that, you know, if a girl did something and was a damsel in distress, she was going to get saved by the knight on the white charger. And, and that's essentially what happened. But the whole story was bigger than that. And the whole story was a much bigger one about why women weren't included in the Boston Marathon, why this official was so angry with me for running, what was the problem here. Um, it wasn't the road of free and open space for everybody. So certainly it was a moment that changed my life. I often say I started the Boston Marathon as a girl and I finished the Boston Marathon as a grown woman because the reality is you can't run 26.2 miles. That's the distance of a marathon, 26 miles, 385 yards. You can't run that distance and stay angry. And uh, through the next few miles, I tried to figure out why this official was so angry with me and 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 I, and I was really furious with him and I was afraid, afraid of him but along about Heartbreak Hill about 21 miles into the race the anger really left me and it left me with wondering why um, and I said well that's because he's a product of his time he's a man who doesn't believe women can do arduous things and shouldn't be allowed to do them for that reason because maybe he believes that you know it would make us unfeminine or there was something socially wrong with this it was just not appropriate for women to be in what was traditionally a man's race although as I said there were no rules written about this um, and I sort of forgave him because he was just a product of his time but then I got angry at women and I kind of wondered where they were you know, the longest distance then in the Olympic Games for women was only 800 meters, twice around the track. And it was always assumed that if a woman ran more than that, that something horrible would happen to her, you know, like she would turn into a man or hair would grow on her chest or she'd turn into some behemoth and her uterus would fall out. She'd never have children. I mean, the myths were just unbelievable. And I think all the women believed those myths. I didn't because I came from a family of great pioneers and, and homesteaders and people who had done very, very tough things. Marathon was no big deal for the likes of my family. And so I was surrounded by the images of women who could do anything in my family. And I realized that the women weren't there in the Boston Marathon because they were afraid. They were afraid of those myths that they had heard and they believed those myths. And they didn't have any opportunities to prove otherwise or reinforcement to prove otherwise or, you know, belief and encouragement to prove otherwise. And then I realized if I could create opportunities for women so that they could feel as good as I felt, felt very empowered and strong, if I could do that for them, then we could really, really change a lot of things. And you're listening to the voice of Catherine Switzer. I started the Boston Marathon as a girl. I finished it as a grown woman. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, that pioneer spirit she was taught, there it was for the world to see. Catherine Switzer's story continues here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we left off hearing Catherine Switzer's story of being the first woman to officially run in the Boston Marathon. And it seems almost, well, unthinkable now that we thought these things, but we did. And by the way, lots of doctors thought these things. We return to her story, though, and how she came to run the race in the first place. Running had given me just about everything in my life, and that, that I had felt great, I felt empowered, and it had reflected in many other areas of my life, not just running. So by the time I crossed the finish line, I already had kind of a life plan, which was to create opportunities for women in running, and also for me to become a better athlete. I finished that first Boston Marathon in four hours and 20 minutes. And I knew people were going to tease me um, and not take me seriously because in those days, in the late 60s, the only people who ran were people who ran well, and or pretty well anyway. Very few people just jogged. And people would say, oh, that's just a jogging time. And that's exactly what happened. The next day, the official himself who threw me, tried to throw me out of the race said I could walk it that fast. I mean, that was really a horrible thing to say on top of everything else. And the fact is, is that you can't walk it that fast, <laughs> not even close. And, um, and so I said, okay, watch me. I'm going to try to become a good athlete. But let's go back and think about what got me there in the first place. Because I think knowing a person's history and why they were motivated to do something and how and who changed their lives is the, maybe the, even the bigger part of the story. And in my case, I began running when I was 12 years old because I wanted to make the field hockey team in my high school. And I was a little skinny girl, prepubescent, very nervous about going to a big high school with with grown-ups essentially there. Um, And my father said, listen, if you want to make that field hockey team, you should run a mile a day. And if you'd run a mile a day, you'd be one of the best players on the team. He was really a very motivating guy, very convincing. And... So I said, oh God, I could never run a mile a day. And he said, sure you could, you could do it right now. I know you could. And he um, helped uh, me measure off our yard. It was seven laps. And all through Washington DC, stinking hot summer, I ran this mile a day in preparation for the autumn when I would go to high school to try out for the field hockey team. And my dad was right when I tried out for the team. It was really one of the best players, not because I had any skills. I mean, I never even had a stick in my hand but because I never got tired and I was in great condition and I could just about outrun everybody. So when I made that team, I felt really, really proud of myself. And so I kept running every day because I felt maybe it was magic. I didn't realize it was just conditioning. I thought in my kind of little childish brain that this is pure magic. Well, my little brain was was actually 100% right because I've been running for 58 years and it is magic. You know, the, the, whole, the whole thing about running is not really just about conditioning or, or getting fast or becoming a good athlete. It's really about the sense of empowerment and strength and confidence and accomplishment that it gives you. And so here I was now going into um, my teenage years and going into high school, feeling like I had a victory under my belt every day that nobody could take away from me. And that was really, really important for kids who, you know, you're facing all kinds of odd behaviors and meeting people, um, you know, and, and, and you don't know kind of how to make proper choices. And if you feel really confident about yourself, 
it helps you make a decision that's that's a right decision and not a wrong decision in many cases. And it was phenomenal that also it, it perpetuated the the concept for me of that if I could do that that like a mile a day, I bet I could run two miles a day. If I could make the field hockey team, I bet I could write for the school newspaper. I've always used running as an empowerment tool for myself to give me confidence to take on some of the most insane challenges you can imagine. And things I would never imagine doing or things that have happened to me, um, I've been able to both endure, prevail over, or continue on with even something better because I've had the confidence that the running has given me. It's amazing. In a bigger sense, that's what's the most important part of the story is the transformational experience of running for women and how it changes their lives and helps them um, control their lives in ways they never believed they could and to take on responsibilities and make decisions that they were denied for many, many years. Because they say, you know, if I can run a mile, then I can run five miles. And then they run 10 miles. And then when they run a marathon, 26.2 miles, they realize they can do anything. When I went to university after high school, I was running three miles a day and I wanted to um, naturally run at university as well. But uh, Syracuse University at the time had absolutely no intercollegiate sports for women, if you can imagine that. And I didn't know what to do. So I decided that I would ask the men's track coach and cross country coach if I could come and run on the men's team. Now I never would have had the courage to do that if I hadn't had that base all through high school of running. But I did and he was very nice, but you could see he was trying hard not to laugh at me. Um, he said I couldn't run officially on the team, it was against NCAA rules, but um, he would welcome me if I wanted to come and work out with the team. And I did, and he was very, very surprised that I showed up. This was the, on the eve of the women's liberation movement. It was the autumn of 1966. And I thought when I went out to run with the men that they would think I was trying to be in their face, that I was trying to you know, show that I was tough and I deserved to be on the team. And I wasn't that way at all, and they didn't perceive that. They really encouraged and motivated me and were very happy to see me and very, very welcoming. One guy in particular was the volunteer coach for the team who was an ex-marathoner. Uh, he was 50 when I met him and I always joke that he was really ancient, you know, <laughs> 50 years old, I was 19. Um, and he felt really sorry for me because all these boys that were running were scholarship boys and they were fast. I couldn't keep up with them at all. Um, I was running three miles a day. They were running like six or eight miles a day. And this guy, his name was Arnie Briggs, had been an ex-marathoner, and he was now injured. Bad knees, bad Achilles. So he decided to start just jogging with me, and as we jogged along, he would tell me stories of his ancient running days, including 15 Boston marathons. And every night out running together after, after classes, he would tell me another story about the Boston Marathon. And, you know, here I was, you know, I had heard of the Boston Marathon and kind of in the back of my mind, I always thought that that would be kind of a dream goal to one day have. 
But here I was every day learning about Clarence DeMar and Tarzan Brown and Johnny the Kelly the Elder and Johnny Kelly the Younger. All these heroes of the sport became sort of my Olympian gods, if you see what I mean. And pretty soon, as it always does in Syracuse, by even by late October, it began snowing and the snow was coming down and all the men in the cross country team finished their season and they went inside to run in the field house on the, on the indoor track. And it was so stuffy and, and smelly and hot in there. Um, I said to Arnie, my coach, uh, now he's my coach, my running partner, let's stay outside and run. And he said, have you ever run through a Syracuse winter? You've never been here before. And I said, well, it can't be that tough. Well, you have no idea. I mean, it was like a hundred and what, 90 inches of snow that year. And there were days and nights that it was 30 and 40 degrees below zero. It was absolutely incredible. But I kept hearing the stories of the old Boston marathons and Arnie and I would plow through the snow and plow through the darkness together. And he would tell me all these stories again and again. And finally, one night um, in January, I said, I'm so sick of hearing about the Boston Marathon. Let's just run it. And then this was the, uh, the first big turning point. Arnie, my beloved coach and friend, said, a woman can't run the Boston Marathon. Women are too weak and too fragile. And I burst out laughing. I said, we are out here running 10 miles in a blizzard in the dark, and you're telling me I can't run a marathon? And he said, 10 miles is not 26. And he said, a woman can't do it. Women are too weak and too fragile. And boy, did we argue. And I finally threatened him with not running with him anymore if he didn't believe some woman somewhere could run the Boston Marathon. And I reminded him that I had read in the newspaper that Roberta Gibb had run the Boston Marathon the year before. And he just burst out in anger. And he said, no dame ever ran no marathon. He just couldn't believe, get his mind around the fact that a woman could do this, this, you know, ultimate distance. And when we come back, you're going to hear Catherine's rebuttal to her friend and her coach and her mentor. And she was going to prove him wrong all by herself. Catherine Switzer's story continues here on Our American Stories. Turn to the story of Catherine Switzer. And of course, she had been told by so many people up till now that, well, women just shouldn't be running in marathons, not certainly the Boston Marathon. And this is her story and her voice. And my goodness, what a voice. Let's pick up where we last left off. Her mentor, friend, and coach, Arnie Briggs, had told her there's just no way dames should be running in any marathon. Let's hear Catherine's rebuttal. Finally, he said, look, if any woman could do it, I believe you could do it, but even you would have to prove it to me. And he said, in fact, if you'd run the distance and practice, I'd be the first person to take you to the Boston Marathon. And I said, hot diggity, there you go. I've got a coach, I've got a goal, I've got a dream. Um, and best of all, I've got a running buddy. 
and I'm going to show him that we can do this. So we trained and trained and trained and trained, and oh gosh, I would say it was late March, and came the day we were going to do 26 miles in practice. Um, when we were finishing up the 26 miles, Arnie, my coach, was so impressed. He said, wow. He said, I can't believe it. You look great. He said, I'm, I'm convinced. He said, you know, uh, I'm really, really, really impressed that you can do this distance. And I said, you know, I think we mismeasured the course. And he said, what do you mean? I said, I think it's short. I think we should do another five miles just to make sure when we go to Boston that nothing can stop us, that we can, it's, it's, we can finish that whole race. And he said, oh, come on, you're not serious about running another five miles. He said, yeah, let's just keep going. Let's do another loop. So we're running now 31 miles. And in the last mile of this workout, Arnie began uh, passing out during the course of the workout. And um, I said, come on, Arnie, we can do this. We can do this. And he was just gone on his feet and just weaving all over the road. I said, come on, one more mile. Come on, come on. I put my arm through his. I pulled him along. I said, come on, come on, one more mile. We can do it. And when we finished this last piece, came across our imaginary finish line. I threw my arms around him. I said, we did it. We're going to Boston. And he passed out. And when he came to, he said, women have hidden potential in endurance and stamina. It was an amazing moment. It was an amazing moment because both of us had discovered something really interesting, that the longer it got, the better I got. That when we went out to run eight or 10 miles and the guys on the team would come and run with us, you know, they were always pushing the pace and I couldn't keep up with them. But when it got to 12, 15 miles, we were pretty evenly matched. And then after that, they said, you know, the hell with you guys. We don't want to, we don't want to run any further than this. This is crazy stuff. And really what was happening was that, that as the distance got better, my natural attributes, the female natural attributes of endurance and stamina were really kicking in. The ability to have fat, more fat than men, convert that fat to a fuel source, to stay warm and have still energy over the long haul, really, really paid off even to the point where Arne himself, a trained marathoner, couldn't take the distance. And it was an amazing moment to realize that. And now it's something that's changing the way we're looking at female athletes in general. You know, for 3,000 years, the Olympics have been about strength, speed, power. Men, men excel in those things, in jumping higher, throwing further, hitting harder, going faster. But when it comes to flexibility, balance, stamina and endurance, women have it all over the guys. The problem is, is that for 3,000 years, we haven't had the opportunity to have sports. So, I mean, until very, very recently, in terms of the world's history of sport, it's only been in the last 75 to 100 years that we have been able to participate in, in sports and have sports in competitions and in the in public, etc. So what we're, we're looking at now is really an exciting era. The next 50 years are going to be very, very exciting when sports perhaps and events will be created that you and I can't even imagine um, that take advantage of women's unique capabilities. I would say getting attacked by the official in the Boston Marathon was at that point in my life certainly the worst thing that had ever happened to me. I was humiliated, I was embarrassed, I was made to uh, feel ashamed, um, and I was second guessing myself 
and my worthiness to be in this race. And it wasn't until I had that split second of, should I quit? Should I, should I step out of this race? Am I doing something wrong? It was just a split second of fear where I wanted to really go home to my mother. And then I realized if I did that, nobody would believe that women could run a marathon. Nobody would believe that women deserve to be there. They would say, oh, these women are just barging into places where they're not welcome and they can't do it anyway. And I knew then that I had to finish that race. And that was the biggest and most important decision I think I've ever made in my life because it changed the whole rest of my life. People often say, um, oh, Catherine, you were destined for this moment of running this race, of, of colliding with the official, of the photographs of the incident going around the world. Those photographs probably would have gone around the world, but the bigger story is what happened afterwards. Things happen to everybody, but often people don't act on what happens. I acted on what happened. I made the decision to finish the race, even if I was going to finish on my hands and my knees if I had to. And I wanted to prove to the world that women could do this. But it was the actualization then in the race itself with the time I had to think that I realized that if women only had the same opportunities that I had, an encouraging father, an encouraging men's team, a coach named Arnie, you know, who ran with me and encouraged me. Um, all of these things really helped me and most women didn't have those. So when I finished the race, as I said, I wanted to become a better athlete and I wanted to create these opportunities. Becoming a better athlete was the easiest part of the conversation. Maybe not easy, but simple anyway, because training works. I trained very hard. I trained really hard. Sometimes I trained over 100 miles a week, twice a day workouts, a 27 mile run every Sunday, and I got to be pretty good. In fact, I won the New York City Marathon, and I was second in Boston with a two hour and 51 minute marathon performance, which even by today's standards is excellent. And for a long time, it was an Olympic qualifier. But I realized then that I realized if I could do that, how much talent existed out there that wasn't getting the same opportunity or didn't have the same drive or the same confidence to do that kind of um, training and that kind of work. So I then decided the most important thing is to get women official into events. A group of women, uh, myself included, worked hard at Boston to get women official in Boston. We were successful with that in 1972. And then we organized the first ever women's road race in Central Park, the mini marathon. And that was such a success. I realized that women maybe wanted their own events so that they wouldn't be intimidated by being around stronger, faster people. And I began organizing uh, and getting sponsorship for a series of women's races around the world ultimately becoming known as the Avon International Running Circuit. And this became a career for me, where eventually we organized 400 races in 27 countries for over a million women. And the data and statistics that we got from those races allowed for the marathon to be included in the Olympic Games, because the Olympic Committee um, uh, had the data on performances, the data on international participation, 
And with sponsorship money, we were able to get some doctors to write up reports showing that women actually were better at endurance events than power events. So with this evidence in hand, we went to the International Olympic Committee and were admitted into the Olympic Games as an official Olympic event for the first time in 1984. And you're hearing Catherine Switzer, and what a story. It just keeps getting better. Her push, her drive to, well, find out what women can do. What were the real boundaries? We're about to find out more. Catherine Switzer's story here on Our American Stories. To hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org, sign up for our newsletter, and we'll send you our five best stories each week. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Turn to Our American Stories and go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do. Sign up for our free newsletter and you'll get stories just like this one. Five of our best ones each week right into your mailbox. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and we'll get you our five best stories of the week. Sign up for our free and terrific weekly newsletter. And we're returning now to Catherine's story. She went on to do much more after that 1967 race. We left off hearing that Catherine had successfully gotten the marathon to be a part of the 1984 Olympic Games in Los Angeles, California. There it is. She's about to go into the tunnel. Now, the people in the Coliseum, most of them know what's going on because part of this race has been up on that big television screen. So they have been watching it. They certainly know what the situation is. And I'm sure they are right now anticipating the imminent arrival of Joan Benoit as she gets into some welcome shade and then very shortly out into the sunlight. When Joan Benoit Samuelson won that race, the American from Maine, when she came into the stadium, 90,000 people, you know, stood on their feet and screamed and cheered. It was utterly, utterly fantastic. It was something to me that was um, the ultimate in acceptance. But more than that, it was a television broadcast to 2.2 million people that showed convincingly that women could run heroically, strong, deserve to be in the Olympic Games, and deserve their equality. It was an absolute game changer, absolute leveling of the playing field in running. Everybody knows how far 26.2 miles or 42.2 kilometers is. Everybody understands distance because they've walked it or they've ridden a bike over the distance or driven it or even ridden a donkey in some countries. And when people from around the world saw women running and running so well, they all understood what that meant. They meant it meant that they had underestimated women's capacity for achievement. Um, and even heroism. So that to me was as important as giving women the right to vote because the vote was about our social and intellectual acceptance and this was about our physical acceptance. 
the Olympics are the ultimate, really, in sports recognition. And now we were running the toughest event uh, in the highest forum, uh, just like the men. And there isn't a tougher event in the Olympic Games than the marathon. So that, to me, was about the physical equality. And that's why it was, to me, comparable to giving women the right to vote. One was about intellectual and social acceptance, the other about the physical acceptance. He has done it. Joan Lindor, the winner of the first ever Olympic Women's Marathon. When you think then about the future, which I think about all the time now, um, you say, wow, we've achieved that. The rest is going to be easy. Well, the rest is never easy. Even now, all these years later, there are women in the world who are not allowed to go out of the house alone, not allowed to have their own passport, not allowed to drive a car or get an education. All the old myths still prevail, and women believe them because they have no opportunity to believe anything else. You only know what's around you. You can dream of some things, but you really only understand what's closest to you. So with that in mind, who would have ever imagined that my old bib number, 261, the number that the race official tried to pull off of me way back in 1967, suddenly became this magic number around the world, quite, quite virally, and it was really amazing, uh, became a number meaning fearless in the face of adversity. People were sending me pictures of themselves running their first race, and on their front, they would have their official bib number from, you know, the Tokyo Marathon or the New York City Marathon or whatever. But on their back, they would be wearing 261. And when people started sending me pictures of their tattoos, I began to take this really seriously. I didn't know what kind of movement was occurring from my old bib number. So I got together with some friends of mine and we decided, what are we going to do with this? Do we create a business? And actually what we decided to do is to create a nonprofit. We created the nonprofit 261 Fearless as a way of empowering women around the world to take the first step in running or even walking. Because we know if they go out and walk or run and have somebody with them who believes in them and encourages them, they can overcome so much else in their life. Because as I said before, running itself is transformational. And if they have the courage to take that first step and we can help give them the courage to take that first step, they too can become empowered and aspire to so much more in their lives. Running can change everything. It has already around the world. We've created a social revolution um, in North America. There are more women runners now in North America than men, and these women are not running to be Olympic athletes. These women are running because it empowers them. And this movement is going globally. And we are hoping that 261 Fearless will reach places, and we're working very hard on this, to reach places where women have no opportunities whatsoever. And they're going to be difficult to reach in some places and difficult to engage, perhaps, but you know, running has done it before and it'll do it again. You know, you're never too old, you're never too slow, you're never too big, you're never too unathletic to put on a pair of sneakers and let running, walking, jogging change your life. I've seen it a million times. And every time you go out and you watch a marathon, you will see people who you couldn't ever imagine uh, could do 
this event, 26 miles, 385 yards. There are people without arms or legs who are blind, people in wheelchairs, people who push themselves along, people who take a day or two or even five to cover the distance, but they do it. The capacity for human achievement is absolutely astonishing. One of the greatest moments in my life happened April of 2017, which was when I decided, hey, you know what? I'm still in pretty good shape. I'm going to run the Boston Marathon for my 50th anniversary. And no other woman has ever done that. There are plenty of 70-year-old, 80-year-old, even 90-year-old women who run marathons, but nobody has run one 50 years after she first did, which is just testimony to how few women ran 50 years ago. But to go through the streets of Boston 50 years later and to have all of those thousands and thousands of spectators cheering for you, many, many hundreds of whom knew my story and had big posters that they held up, said, go Catherine, go 261 Fearless, go women, equality for women, was really, really phenomenal. And it was amazing how easy the race was. Every mile got faster for me. And when I came across the finish line, in 4.44, I was really only 24 minutes slower than I was when I was 20 years old. And I love telling this story because I just really want to encourage people to realize you're never too old and you're never too slow you, to get it back, to feel that sense of health and optimism, and to realize that the future of good health for all of us really may be staying active all your life. People always ask me about Jock Semple and what happened to him and did he ever apologize? Well, frankly, no, he never apologized. But after five years, um, we became best of friends. And people are astonished to hear this. But here's the point. He was a man of his time. And when we became official in the Boston Marathon five years after I ran in 1972, he suddenly became very aware, he had to become aware of the fact that women were taking running seriously, that we loved running. And that's what he saw finally. And he came up to me on the starting line of the Boston Marathon the following year and gave me a big kiss on the cheek. He was a Scotsman. And he said, come on, lass, let's get a wee bit of notoriety and turn me to these TV cameras. And the photographs of Jock Semple and Catherine Switzer making up on the starting line of the Boston Marathon was a photograph that, that really spoke volumes about how people can change. Um, and to me, how important forgiveness is. Because I really forgave Jock Semple when we came over Heartbreak Hill in the 1967 race. You know, I realized he was a product of his time. In a way, it wasn't even his fault. I visited him, in, in fact, a few hours before he died. And people said, whoa, that's a lot of forgiveness. And I say, yeah, you know, life is actually too short not to forgive. And over the years, we had become good friends. And I wanted to see one last time and say goodbye to a man who completely not only changed my life, but changed millions of women's lives. So he was, in fact, a guy who helped the women's running movement probably more than anybody else in spite of himself. And what a story and what a voice, folks. Sometimes the worst things in life, she said, become the best things in life and my goodness that Jack Semple tackled her and that she forgave him and became friends a testimony to how to live a life what a story one of our favorites here on Our American Stories and by the way to hear all that we do again go to Our American Network sign up for our free weekly newsletter 
Our five best stories will come to you and you'll feel better about being a human being, better about being an American. Stories like these, they're everywhere. We'd love to hear yours. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Catherine Switzer's story, the story of women and sports in America, here on Our American Stories.